You're listening to Designing the Revolution. This is chapter 24, uh, The Emergence of the People, part two. Okay, so um, just to say, I'm still in bed if you haven't noticed, because I've still broken my leg, if anyone's wondering, uh, and I will be here for another few weeks. But at some point, I will be doing these videos um, in a chair. <laughs> That's the plan. All right. Um, this, I've decided there's going to be a few, a few parts to this emergence of the people. There's quite a lot to it. So there's going to be two more parts, part three and part four. And in part one, the last one, we went through some critiques and limitations of the Marxist approach to getting a coalition of forces together and the post-structuralists and the radical left or various other words these groups are called. And of course, it's all very, it's all very satisfying, isn't it? Sort of criticism because you can say, well, they don't, haven't done a very good job. And, um, but that's not what designing revolution is about. As you know, designing revolution is about actually designing what to do. So we've got a responsibility to begin to think strategically on a macro level, a top-down level, as it were, looking downwards to, at society and to see which groups are going to fuse together to merge, construct, whatever word you might like to use, the people, the people defined as this coalition of, of different demographics, different cultures, different groups, who are going to engage in the revolutionary episode. In other words, the proposition is these groups don't just emerge. Um, they don't just suddenly decide one day that they're going to, they've had enough. They need to be actively created by the revolutionary vanguard, if you don't like that word, you know, the activists, this core of people that really this series of uh, episodes is directed at. All right, so I'm going to start with a really structural point here. And this, this is what separates what you might call the reformist strategy with the revolutionary strategy. So most social movements, just about all social movements, over the last 30 years, whether they knowingly do it or not, engage in what I would call a reformist strategy towards coalition building, the emergence of the people. They go to another social movement or another group or another you know, area of society and they go, hey, we've got things in common, let's work together and then we build a big coalition and then we go against the bad guys, right? Which, you know, on the surface of it obviously looks pretty straightforward and um and attractive but what i'm going to argue is it's bollocks right, from a revolutionary point of view and that's because of gatekeepers so as we've investigated in previous episodes we do not do collective nouns as it were on designing a revolution. We don't go um, lower middle class people. We don't go youth 
what we go into is which subgroup within that demographic do we want to mobilise? Because within that demographic, there's already pre-existing power relationships, cultural differences, personality types even. In other words, you're not looking at a thing, you're looking at a normal distribution curve, right? Most people in the middle, some people are one extreme, other people at the other extreme, and every single group in society has this normal distribution curve um, structure. Okay, so the basic theory here, let me just give you the basic theory. The basic theory here is that the gatekeepers are doing fine. And in many ways, the society is doing fine, particularly with regard to the climate, because for most people, at least in the Western world, it's not like the climate is pushing down on them every day. I mean, it's increasingly a, a sort of casino of horrific effects. But up to this point, 2023, most people see the climate as something distant. And even on the social question, there's a sort of similarity or at least an exhaustion where people are just don't believe that revolutionary radical change can happen. And this is amplified when you approach the gatekeepers in a particular demographic or social space. So the definition of a gatekeeper is basically a group of people who have power to speak on behalf of a social group. So they could be self-selected in a disorganised social formation or, you know, if it's the Women's Institute or something, you know, a group which has a membership, trade union, then these are your elected officials and, of course, the bureaucrats and people who've got full-time jobs who organise that space. Now, there's a whole bunch of reasons, I'm not going to go into all of them, but it's not rocket science to work out that these gatekeepers do not want to engage in coalition building because they want to maintain the identity and, dare I say, the income source of having a separate organisation which is not working with other people or subsuming itself into a revolutionary formation, put it like that. So there's money involved, there's power involved, but there's also ideology, of course, which is these groups are doing relatively nice by definition of being a gatekeeper relative to the rest of that demographic. So they don't really have that much motivation to engage in some egalitarian revolutionary episode. Um, and lastly, there's a certain inertia involved. You know, you've spent 30 years in a trade union or in some civil society organisation. You don't want to rock the boat. You don't want to, you know, everything's fine. You no, know, lots of problems, obviously. Yeah, we all engage in some performative exercise with some other groups, you know, go and have a march in London, you know, pat ourselves on the back. But basically, we just want a nice, quiet life. Needless to say, then, if you say, oh, we're going to have this coalition with Group X, what it actually means in terms of a more sophisticated analysis is people go and see the gatekeepers because they don't know who else to see. So you go to a charity, let's say, you don't go and talk to some charity workers as a general rule. You knock on the door of the head office and go, hello, we want to talk to, you know, Royal Society for Protection of Birds. And you go in and you know who you're going to end up talking to. You end up talking to some central bureaucrat and or, you know, the vice president. Or if you're really important, you'll get to talk to the top person. None of those people are interested in revolutionary change for the reasons I've just said. So when, when sort of the reformist default st strategy is enacted, 
What it actually means in practice is you don't go and talk to the environmental movement. What, that's just an abstraction. What you end up doing is you're going and talking to people who are the least likely to want to engage in a revolutionary strategy. So this, this connects with a sort of old left defeatist orientation, which is sort of Gramscian. We've dealt with Gramsci a few, you know, on a few occasions. And in some respects, Gramsci is, is actually quite uh, useful, right, what he, what he said. And in other respects, a certain interpretation of Gramsci is definitely unuseful. And the unuseful interpretation of Gramsci is his idea, and this is pervasive across progressive and left circles, which is you have to march through the institutions. You have to engage in slow, decade-long uh, cultural change. You have to bring civil society organisations together. That doesn't work. It doesn't work in 2023. We've got two or three years to create this transformation. This is not a Gramscian approach. It's not a Gramscian universe anymore, right? It's not 1990. <coughs> what we're looking at here is rapid, quick, transgressive, like, eruptions within the social space, which transform demographics rapidly, and we're going to talk about that in a minute. So, I, you know, in case you're just thinking and waffling on about all this, <laughs> it's like, like, if you look at the last 30 years of uprising episodes in the Western world and, you know, even in the, in the global south, you get similar, you know, middle-income countries anyway, get similar sort of dynamics. So two, you know, two well-known examples are uh, Tahrir Square in 2012, you know, it's a revolutionary episode, thousands of people and then a million people in Tahrir Square. The key oppositional conventional space was an organisation called the uh, Muslim Brotherhood, which had been going for decades and, you know, on paper was opposed to secularisation, was opposed to inequality, was opposed to modernity, you know, whether you like its politics or not. It was... Sociologically speaking, the main uh, opposition. And what happened was a classic revolutionary dynamic, which was the the leadership of the Muslim Brotherhood was going, no, 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 we're against Tahrir Square, against Tahrir Square, against Tahrir Square. You know, we don't want to be involved in this. This is, you know, whatever they said, what they really were saying was, it's outside our control, so, you know, we don't like it. But the people on the ground, of course, the Muslim Brotherhood guys on the ground, they were all going, fantastic, oh my God, this is our chance, let's go to Tahrir Square. And then the Muslim Brotherhood, I can't remember exactly what day it was, but it was broadly towards the end, when they knew they were going to win, when they suddenly swapped sides and went, oh no, Tahrir Square, quite a good idea. And you can see this was, you know, as it always is, is a bit of a cynical move, let's put it like that. Similarly with... Uh, Occupy in New York, I think it was in 2012, was it? Um, you know, massive upsurgence of popular, democratic, participatory, non-violent uprising situation, right? And in the early stages, what some people rather amusingly call the anarchist establishment, in other words, the self-described revolutionary left in New York, they're all poo-pooing this. They're going, it won't work. It's reformist, you know, just throw that word in. Who knows what that word means? Uh, blah, 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 blah. And, in, and they missed the boat. Um, this happens, 
you know, this isn't the exception, this is the rule. If you look at every revolutionary episode of the last 200 years, the people who are the proper revolutionaries, they always come in in the second or third act, right? You know, because they're not that clever and they're like established and they, they, um, they're not in the people. They're not constructing the people, if you see what I mean. All right. So what is the revolutionary strategy? What's the two-year strategy? Generically, because we're going to look at some particular examples in a minute. Um, the generic strategy, as we've discussed from the bot in the bottom-up episode, is action confrontation, trigger events, uh, transgression. In other words, like you're grabbing, you're grabbing the social attention through doing something that's emotional, that that no one else has done before. And you're doing it on a scale that creates this tipping point in the news cycle. So someone actually yesterday was talking to me about this and they're going, Roger, you know, we did, we did X, you know, and it's transgressive and it's not getting anywhere. So I said to them, the reason you're not getting anywhere is because you need to do 5X, right? I'm not saying this because I'm being super radical, macho or sort of, you know, ridiculously revolutionary, just saying as a social scientist, that there's a tipping point in the social space. And below that tipping point, you get nowhere, right? You know, you might throw a little bit of paint on, on your university building. So what? You know, you, what you need is, you know, eight fire extinguishers full of paint, and then you're going to get five million views or whatever's going to happen. Again, I'm not necessarily saying it's right or wrong, but in terms of it's um it's effect it's there's this tipping point and what that what that trigger point does of course is um is 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 creates all this attention and often the bad guys then amplify that by news articles you know we've had examples that we'll be talking about this more with the daily mail in the uk you know all the bad guys sort of think they're right and they amplify it for you and loads of people find out about it lots of people think you're terrible 70% of people always think you're terrible you know 20% of people are going well you know maybe that's cool 10% of people are going oh my god that's fantastic you know nothing truth-telling like this has happened hasn't happened before and they're going to come into your space your revolutionary space and as we know because we discussed this with the um, research on uprisings once you get a critical mass of 1,000, 2,000, 5,000 people then basically you're in the ballpark of creating a major confrontation. So that's the methodology, right? Okay, so I'm going to give an, a little example of this sort of, these two opposed strategies, as you might say. So a number of groups uh, of, I'm aware or, or, or have spoken to, and they want to do a sort of revolutionary strategy, as it were, on, on food. Now, in the UK, everyone used to have enough to eat. But as I'm sure many people watching this know, you know, there's this massive scandal in the UK that millions of people go without meals. They go hungry, particularly children. It's obscene. We're a really rich country. Why is it happening? So instead of being nice to, you know, the powers that be, like, let's go to supermarkets, take food out of supermarkets, give it to poor people, put it outside the supermarket, you know, have a demand that supermarkets share their waste food, these billions of pounds of waste food that are, you know, thrown away each 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 year. 
Okay, all well and good, arguably. Um, then there's the, what's the reformist strategy? The reformist strategy, of course, is to go to the food banks and go, hello, food banks, you know, we're going to do this transgressive action. You know, would you like to support us? Would you like to come along, help us take food out of the supermarket? You know, would you like to distribute it to your people? <coughs> now, this hasn't happened yet, so I'm not 100% sure of it, but I'm 90% certain the food banks, paradoxically, are at the heart of what you might call the charity defeatist left-like reformist orientation. In other words, their orientation is you can't change the system. Uh, you know, at worst, it's, it's not a political issue. And, and all we can do is help these poor, poor people by giving them free food. So it's a sort of Mother Teresa orientation. Now, it doesn't necessarily have to be as extreme as that sort of right-wing Christian sort of orientation. But there's an implicit defeatism. Because why else would you create a food bank? A food bank dampens the problem, it mitigates the problem, it distracts you from the fundamental point, which is the rich are stealing from the poor and creating enormous hardship. Like the solution, the structural solution, the revolutionary solution is a change in the structure of society, not to ameliorate the existing system. In other words, the approaches are completely different, right? The logics are completely different. And this is something we're going to be coming on to, you know, more and more as we get into the battle, as you might say. Um, and I'll be looking at it in the next, in the next uh, session, for instance. Uh, no, two sessions from now. Okay. <coughs> So what will happen, my prediction is, you're going to see the food banks and they're going to say, well, at best, they're going to go, well, you know, really support that, but we need to take it to the committee and some people on the committee aren't going to be that keen on it. You know, the church is going to be worried. And you're going to spend like three months faffing around with all these food banks, you know, and not actually get anywhere at the end of it. So far better strategy is to go and do it. And then the Daily Mail says, you know, big headline saying, you know, anarchist idiots, you know, stealing food, you know, put them in prison, blah, blah, blah. And the sophisticated approach to that, of course, is fantastic because that means, you know, all the tabloids are covering it, which means millions of people are going to become aware of it. And within that millions of people, there's the 5%, the 2%, the 1% of food banks stroke community activists that are so pissed off with the charity defeatist paradigm that they're going to go, oh my God, isn't that amazing? And they're going to get in touch with the website of the food distribution campaign, as it were, and you're suddenly going to find your next 50, 100 activists, community people are going to go, I've never done like anything like this in my life, but I'm ready to do it because I'm so fucked off. Those, those are your next people. And the people that, the way you get hold of those people is via the publicity that comes from the initial transgression. See, this is a completely different strategy, okay? Because you're getting these amazing people via action. You don't start with mobilization, you start with action. And the action creates the mobilization, as I think we discussed in previous episodes. So again, if you think this is all a little bit fair, I'll just give you a sort of half example, which is in 2019, in April 2019, Extinction Rebellion, you know, had this big uh, episode in London, 10,000 people, you know, thousands of arrests. Everyone's talking about it around the country. The centre of London was held up. 
Now, as a byproduct of that, there's all these community groups in London. And of course, most of the community groups are going to go, well, you know, that's really scary. That's not, you know, they shouldn't be doing things like that. But let's say for the sake of argument, 10, 20% of those community groups have got a critical mass of subliminally revolutionary people in them that are so pissed off that they're going, I don't really care about Extinction Rebellion, but what they're doing is really cool. And we need to be doing something like that because we're so like run down with the endless humiliation and the insults of a system that never listens to us, etc. So I got invited to various groups and there was no institutionalization around it in Extinction Rebellion, so it didn't really take off, you know, which is another issue. But the point is, of course, is the, the reason they were, these community groups were inviting me to go and talk to them was because they were excited by the transgression. They're excited by this revolutionary direct action civil resistance paradigm. And, you know, to a certain extent, if they'd been given enough support, then you could have had, you know, civil disobedience happening around housing, knife crime and, and, and such like. All right, so let's get going then. Um, we're just going to have a little review of, of how the, the mobilisation works. And obviously we've covered this to a certain extent. So I'm just going to remind ourselves of how, how, it, how it works. And then I'm going to talk about free social groups in a little bit of detail and why those free social groups are really critical to this emergence of the people, which I'll explain in a minute. So just to remind ourselves, what are we trying to do here? We're trying to mobilise a whole demographic of society, right? a particular group, uh, a particular cultural group, political group, social group, right? And how we do that, there's two main principles, these principles of sociability, which is we want to enable them to participate, okay? We're not going in like some left-wing cult saying, we've got all the answers, you listen to us. People aren't interested in that. People get empowered, as we all know now, through the act of speech, through participation, through co-creating their own reality, sitting in small groups and all the rest of it. And the general rule of thumb is, is when you create these spaces, 50% of the time plus, you want the guys in the room to be doing the talking, not you. <coughs> so this produces this, you know, this ongoing theme of sociability, and then remind, reminding ourselves it's all about action, as I've just said. Right? It's not like, hey, let's sit in the room, hey, let's have an assembly. It's like, yeah, we'll sit in a room for three hours, we'll have an assembly. But after that, we're going off to occupy the council. After that, we're going to have a you know slow march around a, 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 a roundabout, whatever it is. In other words, it's something that bodies move, because when bodies move, people get empowered. So remember, these are the two main structural uh, causal agents in mass empowerment, engaging in the act of speech in small groups, number one. Number two is engaging in transgressive action that creates adrenaline, to be a bit reductive about it. <laughs> okay, let's look at some specifics. Um, this is just give you a flavour of, of a sort of macro design. So let's take trade unions, or let's take Christians, right? So we've got this, you know, needle in a haystack problem, haven't we? That, you know, 90%, 99% of trade unionists, people who go to church, 
they're not interested. They're a little bit interested maybe, they certainly will be interested when everything gets really tricky, but at this moment in time, <coughs> they're not just gonna drop tools just because you've said the word revolution to them. So what you have to do is get in touch with them all, okay? So one thing we've done and different groups have done successfully is a mass email. So you email, you send out like 1,500 emails, 2,000 emails to all these groups. And then what you're going to do is you're going to get, you know, maybe 20, 30 people in the room, which you might think, oh, that's terrible. But that's your core, remember, that's your long tail. And then you take it from there, right? Another way of doing it, to somewhat contradict myself, is, is to identify key radical influencers. Now, there's a sort of difference between influencers and gatekeepers. Gatekeepers have this formal power, and obviously they're influential. And some of those gatekeepers never say never, right? It's not impossible that some of those gatekeepers are ready to engage in this revolutionary episode, but we know it's 99.9% .9 not. But there's influencers. Influencers in the space do not necessarily have an institutional role. This, this is particularly the case like in culture, you know, pop musicians, you know, artists and what have you. They're often their own people, like they produce their own stuff and they're not embedded in some bureaucratic sort of herd situation. So, for instance, in Just Up Oil, there's this guy called Chris Packham, you know, he's famous naturalist. He's self-employed, as you might say, you know, he can do more or less what he's like. He's at the peak of his, his profession, he's in his 50s. I think he's in his 50s. Anyway, you know, he's a classic cultural figure who can amplify your message because he's not a gatekeeper, okay? So then there's the ultimatum. So this obviously is connected with action. So you go to the group, you go to the Labour Party or, you, you know, you go to a charity and say, we want you to engage in structurally ethical activity and they say, no, we're not. And then you start this big drama. You go and occupy them, you know, and you do this transgressive action. Um, so you might combine this, you know, you might do a mass email first, and then you get all these people to do this ultimatum, or you've got the influencers coming in. Doesn't This is not a do this, do this, do this. It's more like you're playing around with these different pieces on the board, as it were. And then assuming you're quite well established, let's say you've got a big campaign, like for instance in the UK, you've got Just Stop Oil, you know, and it raises a decent amount of money, then you can do what's called front, front loading, where you go to a depressed demographic, you go into that space, you're gonna do talks, you're gonna do some transgressive stuff. People come out of that, would come out of the woodwork, but they're poor without beating around the bush on it, right? So you're gonna to have to pay them, because if you're going to enable oppressed demographics to engage in political action, the activists are not going to be able to afford to work full-time by definition. So again, you're selecting, you're headhunting these first movers and saying, hey guys, you know, would you like to work full-time? We're going to train you, we're going to work with you, you're going to design campaigns and we're going to pay you. And you, this doesn't need to be like hundreds of people or anything, right? This is like five or ten key people. All right, so that's giving us a little taste, hopefully, <laughs> of how we go and how we specifically design mobilisation um, with different demographics. Obviously, depends upon the structure of that demographic, the culture of it, the history, 
<coughs> the history, um, you know, the level of income. So we need to have a bespoke analysis of, of how we're going to build this emergence of the people. The other thing, of course, is is due to the whole neoliberal divide and rule, you know, old as hills uh, orientation, society is structured in such a way that these groups, these different groups, don't actually like each other that much. And they might not like you because you're part of a group that's not their group. So this isn't easy, right? No one should pretend that coalition building is easy. But what we have established is going through the gatekeepers and non-starter. That doesn't mean doing the action mobilization approach is easy. It's a bit hit and miss, but it's 100 times easier than doing the gatekeepers thing. Okay, so below all this is, is the notion of class. And, and all these three groups I'm going to talk about to varying extents have been oppressed, you know, to use a Marxist orientation on this, have been oppressed by the ruling class. And they, but they don't identify as working class. They don't necessarily identify as being oppressed because what the neoliberal project does, like all elite projects, is creates identities that are more opposed to other oppressed groups than they are opposed to the actual objective oppressor, as you might say. So this is like, you know, standard theory that you have to, you know, take on board. All right, so let's just plow in and see how, how we're going to do with one or two of these groups. So I haven't selected these three groups willy-nilly, right? I'm looking at Western society in 2023. So that's a specific time and place, right? I'm not talking about 50 years ago. I'm not talking about <coughs> poor global South countries. Nothing against all those, you know, those those times and places. But I'm going to focus on this because most of this, you know, series of podcasts is focused on this project, Western Societies, 2023. <coughs> so most of the people who are going to be engaged in the big social transformation revolutionary project initially are going to tend to be middle class university educated white urban and such like not ab not totally of course right but as a if you're going to stick people into de that demographic in, in, into a demographic that's broadly where they're going to fit now historically this is always inevitable so a lot of these people feel really terrible about being in this demographic but it's nothing unusual historically the revolutionary projects are started by intellectuals like myself, you know, like you watching this video, who think a lot, read a lot and all the rest of it. And as we've discussed, you know, most of these groups get overbonded and get overintellectualized and don't have any role in real history at all. But some of them do. And this is what this, these episodes are about. So when we're talking about the construction, the emergence of the people, what we need to be thinking about is, is how do we break out of this rather comfortable, um, largely invisible to a lot of people, uh, silo? Because one of the reasons people stay in the silo is they don't see that it's a silo. They think everyone's like this. Well, obviously, they're not. Uh, and the Revolutionary Project, you know, 101, 
is is about moving out of the this one demographic into these other demographics so you have four or five key groups in society that are objectively oppressed as you might say and you're going to do a b and c which we're going to discuss in a minute a b and c to these different groups and bring them together to construct the people to go in confrontation with the ruling class with the carbon state and win because they're they're a big enough demographic and I've selected three groups and you know you can mess about with this a little bit but I think broadly this is correct is there's three primary groups in western societies that often have very little to do with each other but are the key what you might call crossover demographics so we've talked about this a little bit like you know farmers small business people you know soldiers priests if you look at the history of revolution once these groups start passing over into the revolutionary project then you're in you're on the home straits okay um so in 2023 i'm going to propose broadly speaking there's three groups there's youth there's black and ethnic minority groups and there's the lower middle class more specifically the small town regional lower middle class I'm going to define these. I'm not going to get too, you know, anal about precisely who's in what group and all that sort of thing. But I'm going to suggest these are the key groups that need to move in order to build this emergence of the people. And there's also a crossover, obviously. You know, some, you know, some people are in two groups or even or in in three. All right. <coughs> So I'm going to just investigate the youth because in some ways that's easiest because I've already got a case study that shows how that mobilisation can work, at least on a small scale. Um, and then we'll go and, and in the next episode, we're going to look at the other two. All right, so let's just think about the youth situation. So historically, when you go to an objectively oppressed group, one of the reasons it's not activated is because it's so miserable about its own situation. In other words, paradoxically, the experience of oppression reinforces that oppression because it's internalised through various mechanisms of self-guilt, self-pity, you know, mutual hatred and all these dysfunctionalities of individualization, atomization, and what have you. So the paradox is, is you say, oh, we're going to go and mobilise youth. And someone will say to you, that's impossible. You know, these people, <laughs> young people just are not going to do it. Look at them. They're, they're depressed. They're atomised. They're distracted. And of course, as a revolutionary, a sophisticated revolutionary, you've got to go, that's why they need to be mobilised. Because their level of... of discontent internalized discontent is a reflection of the structural oppression that they that they that they're subject to so paradoxically the more difficult it is to mobilize them it's also the reason to mobilize them which sounds like you know you're giving yourself a hard job right <laughs> and arguably you could could so i'm just going to give you quite an interesting example about how activation works because I've done about 100, 150 public talks, as, 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 as I've said. So I go to, you know, Bedford or whatever. And usually when I'm talking about climate crisis, which I usually talk about, 
you know, most of the demographic, uh, people over 40, 50, you know, quite a lot of women over 50. And then there's usually one or two, two or three younger people looking very miserable and atomized, let's put it like that. And then I know that statistically, the ones that are going to actually activate are, are proportionately not the youth. The youth are less likely per proportion of the, of the population as here, put the, 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 the people in the meeting, they're not going to mobilize. So let's say, for instance, there's, <coughs> you know, there's eight people over 50, four of those mobilize. There's three people under 25, only one, although one of those will mobilize. Okay. So it doesn't look that good, does it? But this is the sting in the tail. Okay. So I, I did this, I did this talk, um, in quite a sort of trendy town and this activist came up to me, he was under 25. He said, this talk was fantastic. You know, I want, I want you to do this talk to other people. So he was, he was one of, one of these people that I managed to activate and he brought like around 10 young people. So there were 10 peop young people to speak to. So notice not three. Now there was 10 numbers are important. So I gave a more, you know, robust talk you know swore a bit more than all this sort of thing and said you know look guys it's totally fact you know you have to get a grip what's your generation going to do and we sat in a circle and i was thinking you know this isn't going to go well you know i bought into this idea of youth defeatism they're just not going to do it they're too depressed atomized and then this guy said fuck it i'm going to do it and within like five minutes all of those eight, eight people, without exception, and signed up to do civil disobedience. Now, this is an absolutely critical like, case study because what it shows is once you get a critical mass of an oppressed group together, you get this miracle of empowerment. If it was just one or two people on their own, particularly if it was mixed in with people from other demographics, they're just, they're just not going to get the courage. The reason why he went, fuck it, was he's looking at his peers and going, what the hell are we doing? Why are we just sitting here letting this happen to us? Um, and then, of course, you've got this sort of what you might call micro herding factors. Once one, two or three have gone, all right, we're going to do it. Then everyone does it because everyone wants to be part of this team and this culture and this new emergence, right? So this is how the people emerge. The people is not, it's not a a, a neutral term. The people is the people empowered, the people engaged, the people activated through, you know, being open to this tragic reality that they face and then realizing they're not just going to sit there waiting to die. So we've got this like sort of schizophrenic sort of analysis then. On the one hand, we've got, you know, the fear, the atomization, this herding effect, the herding effect which keeps everyone in the status quo. But then we've got, bring all these people together and something happens. And one of the reasons it happens, one of the unique aspects of youth, of course, is they don't have much history. In other words, they, you know, if you're 18, you haven't done 20 years of defeated social activism. So you're what might call fresh uh, by definition, <coughs> which has its pros and cons. But obviously one of the things, and this is arguably one of the reasons why youth 
mobilised, you know, in revolutionary formations, is they're not loaded down with all that defeatist self-story, you know, it's really difficult to organise, really. No, it's like, I'm new, I'm entering the world, the world is my oyster, let's go and do it. Like, they don't think that much, which in that respect is, is a good thing. So what we did after Insulate Britain, maybe some of you know this story, but, you know, Insulate Britain was mainly people over 50. It was a bit embarrassing. You know, this was people blocking motorways to get the British government to Insulate. And there were about four or five really keen young people. And everyone's going, yeah, Insulate Britain's, you know, it's not very good, it's not mobilising the youth. And everyone had this default uh, defeatist routine of going, well, you know, it's because you can't mobilise youth because they're really difficult and they have so many other things to think about and blah, 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 blah. And I said, because I know my stuff, and hopefully you know your stuff by now, it's like, no, it's nothing to do with the culture. It's nothing to do with the demographic. You know, I mean, it obviously has some influence, but that's not the substantive issue. The substantive issue is the micro-design of the mobilisation process, right? The micro-design of the mobilisation process. In other words, you need to get out there, talk to young people, get them together, tell them the fact, and then like enable them to emote around there and co-create a civil resistance outcome. So what did we do? We did that. I said, let's actually go and mobilise them, right? It's not like rocket science. <laughs> if you want to mobilise a group, it helps to actually do something. And you'd be surprised how many groups there are around the Western world who, when you go to them and you say, you have to actually mobilise, they look horrific, you know, horrified. Oh my God, you know, failure. Anyway, so off we went, you know, delivered 5,000 leaflets, uh, around university campus, we worked out that that would result in 10 to 20 students coming to a meeting. Half to a quarter of those would then go engage in civil disobedience. We just ramped that up, so we took on five or ten young people, you know, and within three or four months, you've got 250, 300 young people, and they're all, you know, rearing to go because you've got this self-reinforcing herding mechanism because all these young people are mixing together they go down they go you know into oil refineries and within about fortnight the whole of the just up oil campaign which came after insulate britain became youth led right so you brought these people on they became the 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 spokespeople it, you know it's a self-conscious strategy of empowerment and bringing on younger people now there's all sorts of little messy details around the edges of course you know as there is in any real live case study the point is, is within four months, you know, you went from a campaign that's that's characterised by one demographic to being characterised by another demographic by a structural, sustained, smart strategy of empowerment and uh, recruitment and mobilisation, right? <coughs> um, so the next step, the next step on the youth mobilisation, we're going to talk about this quite quite a bit, is, is underneath all these demographics, as I've said, is this notion of social class. Class, to my mind, is the fundamental division in society. And I'm saying that from empirical observation, that it's suppressed because of all this identity stuff. But one of the key moves here is is to divide youth into non-university educated youth 
university educated youth and within university educated youth at least in the UK you have non-elite universities and then you have red brick sort of elite universities these are quite different a lot of the non-elite universities are really crappy courses people aren't going to get good jobs you know they're going to get squeezed into shitty uh, accommodation and and you know nasty office jobs blah 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 those guys are your main demographic to mobilize not the elite guys because obviously the elite guys are similar to your gatekeepers yes you're going to find some amazing people because they're you know a lot of those guys are going to be quite intelligent and confident so you definitely want some of those people to be involved but in terms of mass mobilization you're focusing on the non-elite universities the community colleges and you'll find that those people will mobilize on mass once you get to a critical mass of course because the objectivity of their oppression is 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 self-evident to them uh, they've got less to lose in other words so a little example of this is fridays for a future you know fridays and future in the uk wasn't growing very well i said to them you know you want to get everyone to come down to london people came down to london uh, all these kids about a thousand of them then they went off to the schools and the next time there were 10,000 kids. By the time there was 10,000 kids, the whole social class makeup had changed. It was mainly like working class kids, uh, work, uh, 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 black and Asian kids. And they came down because they could see that something was happening that was real. And it was big and it was real. They were going to take part in it. So you can see this transition in terms of what you're trying to mobilise. So, as usual, I've gone on longer than I thought, but I'll just give you this little quick story, you know, which I don't know if I've told you. I never can remember which stories I've told or not. But the King's College story, I think I've told you this, so I'm just reminding you, you've heard it before. But the interesting thing about the King's College uh, divestment campaign that I designed was... Um, King's College is enormously um, conservative college, right? You know, it's king and country stuff. Uh, international elite students, you know, focus, focus on your course, don't think, all this sort of stuff. So it's really difficult to mobilise people. So what did we do? We went and did transgressive action, as the theory predicts, right? Uh, uh, dictates. So we went and threw, you know, seven, ten thousand pounds worth of paint around the Gothic Hall. The vice principal was down within five minutes, as predictable. Uh, we were arrested, various sort of things happened. But the key, this is the key thing, is a, a, an email went out to 27,000 students, 29,000 students, saying, Roger Hallam is terrible, you know, um, this is terrible act of vandalism, you know, King's College is doing wonderful stuff on the climate, you know, blah, 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 blah. So 70% of the students were probably thinking, yeah, Roger Hallam's terrible, you know, this is awful because we're rich and privileged and we don't need to think about our responsibilities. And let's say for the sake of argument, 29% of students were going, well, you know, that's in, you know, maybe, maybe not. And then 1% of students were going, oh my God, this is the best thing that's ever happened. You know, this is someone doing something real about something that's beyond awful. So 200, 300 students came out of the woodwork, literally, and went, we want to join you. Now, all you need to understand about King's College is, like, getting more than eight students to do anything is like getting blood out of a stone. But once you're doing the transgressive action, as the theory predicts, you suddenly got 200, 300 students. So then what we did next is we got them all to put 
poster paint and daffodils in the front of King's College in this sort of artistic action asking the college to divest. And um, the police arrived, you know, and they couldn't decide whether it was criminal damage or not because it's just poster paint. It was very feminised, so there's lots of female students took part. Beautiful thing. But the point is, over 200 students took part. You never get 200 students taking part in a million years if you hadn't done that transgressive action. So in other words, to find the 200 most radical students in Kings, you had to do the transgressive action to find the needles in the haystack, see how that works, right? It'd have taken years to go around all the different, you know, uh, colleges and, you know, accommodation going, excuse me, are you radical? You know, it's just like, doesn't even bear thinking about. All right, so hopefully I nailed that down for you and, and we've looked at this really empowering, fascinating case study of mobilising young people, right? How that works and how that has worked and obviously, you know, that model needs to be worked up. And then the next episode, we're going to look at the other two demographics and see how we can design a mobilisation uh, to create this multifaceted emergence of the people. Okay, thanks.